Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, stack Waddy game. Are you going first or am I? I'll go first if you want. I've got two options. You can choose oh, the two subjects if you want. You get a choice. I, I don't mind. I'm happy either way. Go on. One is from the dark satanic mills of black metal. And the other is footballers who've made singles. So, <laughs> oh, I can't resist footballers who've made singles. So you right, take, okay, okay. you're going to have one who didn't make a single. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, all right. Here's six footballers okay. who made a single. This is the name of their single. And you've got to identify the, the one that isn't real. Okay, so these are solo singles. Solo singles. Bob. Solo singles. All right. Okay. Yeah. Go on. Dion Dublin had a, a, a single out called Doing the Doob. Okay. Yeah, Andy yeah. Cole had one called Outstanding. <laughs> we had Ian Wright do the right thing. Right. Okay. Kevin Keegan, head over heels in love. Yep. Vinnie Brown's big bad Leroy Brown. Vinnie Brown, Vinnie Jones, what I'm talking I about. Vinnie so. Jones, big bad Leroy Brown. And Rude Hullet's not the dancing kind. Okay. okay. Uh, purely on the grounds that he's He's far too boring to have ever done this. I'm going to say Andy Cole never made a single. Oh, right, okay. No, Andy Cole amazingly did. Oh, God. The record was fantastically unsuccessful. It was called Outstanding. Yeah, and I, don't, I mean, he was briefly really hot, wasn't he, Andy Cole? And I know, but, but never, ex never exciting at all. Never no, no. exciting. No, the others did. Yeah, Kevin Keegan did, Vinnie Jones did. As you remember, Rude Hullet had a number 10 hit in Holland in 1984. <laughs> And Dion Dublin has not put out a single, but he has invented a drum called the Doom. Oh, a right. six-sided cuboid drum. And everyone is expecting that by now he would have got out a single. Yeah, it was sure. something like doing the Doom. Yeah, it's because he's Mr. Personality, isn't he, Dion yeah, Dublin? He turned is. his hand to both things. He oh, well. So we'll, okay, we'll await the Dion Dublin uh, debut single. Okay, over All to right. me. Over Go to on. me. Go on. Uh, legendary New York venue, CBG, CBGB's. Yeah. Okay. The following bands all played at CBGB's. Okay. Back in the, back in the day. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Gorilla Biscuits. 
Okay. The clits. <laughs> the lunar chicks. Yeah. The, the laughing dogs. And yep. you and youth of today. Oh God, that's really difficult. Okay, five, but one of them is completely made up. Okay, and Gorilla this is, this Biscuits. Is back, in the, back in the day, you're talking about 1975, 76, is that right? Well, the 70s into the 80s, really. The 80s. Okay. The Gorilla Biscuits, the Clits, the Lunar Chicks, the Laughing Dogs, and Youth of Today. Yes. Which oh, one? that really, really is hard. Uh, the clicks <laughs> is very funny, and that's kind of, I, I would imagine that's real, because the sort of edgy uh, thing that uh, New York clubs would have done in the mid-70s. Lunatics, I think, existed. Uh, laughing Dogs, I, I sense, is almost, is almost too, um, I don't know, maybe that's just too, too ordinary. Could, could you have made that up? I'm not sure. Yeah, Youth of Today is pretty ordinary, though, isn't it? <laughs> Dave, I'm going for. I think I'm going to go for Gorilla Biscuits. I don't really know why, but Gorilla Biscuits sounds like something that from the uh, from the has been cooked up by D. Hepworth. Well, you're an in, insulting the memory of the Gorilla Biscuits because they really did exist. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, the ones no. who didn't exist were the clits. Okay. <laughs> I should, should have figured that out because why would you call a group something like that? Because you'd never have gotten the radio, would you? Well, I don't know. It's certainly like the slits, isn't it, really? I, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there you go. There you go. There you have it. Those groups who played uh, CBGB never had any uh, notion of being on the radio anyway. Uh, so there we go. That's the Stack Waddy game for this week. So uh, what's the anniversary of Donna oh, Summer? Oh, Donna Summer. We're talking about Donna Summer. Love to Love You Baby came out 45 years ago. Well, a version of it was tested in the clubs, I think. The actual release, I think, was in the autumn. But uh, I'm pretty sure it was, it was pretty much exactly now that the first version came out. And you wrote a brilliant thing in one of your books, I think it was in Fabulous Creation, about the, um, about the, the, the arrival of that record and how it happened. Giorgio Moroder, am I right? Well, yeah, I remember. The way I remember it is I was working at HMV in Oxford Street at the time, and, uh, and there used to be this guy who used to come in quite, you know once a year maybe and he was a i think he ran a disco or a hotel or something in beirut i think it was and he used to just come over and stock up on all the records to play you know in his club and you know it would be i don't know barry white or marvin gay or whatever at the time and uh and i dealt with him and uh and he said to me have you got any sex music <laughs> I, I, like this blush. was a category. Yeah, he said it as if it was a category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I rather blushed. And uh, when I uh, tried to get further details of him, what he was really referring to was he'd heard a version of Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer, because that was just utterly the hot thing. And, and of course, the reason he called it sex music was it was it was sort of like a sexual demonstration record you know that was that was the way it sounded to people at the time because we hadn't got used to kind of wall-to-wall -wall, you know endless disco music you know where, where kind of the the sound of the female orgasm was it was an absolute right. commonplace it's whereas, a girl in a state of high excitement isn't it whereas in those yeah. days it wasn't and uh yeah i remember getting him this record and then now there's well the story goes that that georgia Moroda met he knew donna summer she was a session singer she'd done all kinds of things 
she she ended up when she comes from Boston, Massachusetts, I think, and she ended up in Europe in a in a production of Hair and DNA you know, and the various things. Well, she got married to 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 somebody in Europe, hence the name Summer. Um, and he he said to her, "If you've ever got any ideas for tunes or anything, come to me." And and she went to him later. And all she had was just love to love you, baby. It was love that phrase, you. really, wasn't it? That's just right, yeah. that. Yeah. Just that. And so they, he was taken with that. And so they did some kind of very basic demo. And they, they took it to Medem, to the, the, the music, you know, the industry trade festival, and uh, shopped it around. And one of the people who heard it was Neil Bogut. Neil Bogut, who was the leading light of Casablanca Records. Casablanca, a record label, never, never been accused of good taste. You know, Casablanca was the record label that brought the world Kiss. You know? That's right. Uh, but, you know, Neil Berger knew what sold. And he said, it's very good, this, but it needs to be longer. And they said, well, how long? He said, well, it needs to be long enough to soundtrack an orgy. Soundtrack an orgy. <laughs> and so, you so know, now it, becomes, what is your definition of how long uh, that should be? I, yeah, I can't remember. In terms it's of stamina. Two, and, yeah. 14 minutes or something like that, 12 minutes. Neil Bogart said it as if he regularly had orgies round at his house. You know? Yeah. And, of course, the interesting thing about that record is if you go and listen to it, you know, it gets, it gets kind of um, put in with all her subsequent hit records, most of which were utterly electronic, whereas... Love to Love You Baby is quite an old-fashioned sounding record. It's got a real drummer, isn't it? It's got a real drummer. So that real what... drummer has to sustain... How long was it again? Was it 14 well, minutes? Well, they, 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 yeah. 15 or something like 15 minutes, I can't remember. But that's not whole, looped, is it? That's just a sustain... now, now, I think if you go and listen to the LP, I think it fades occasionally and then comes back. Yeah. Which probably means that they're cross-fading two versions. Yeah, Because the yeah. drummers simply can't keep it, you know... <laughs> can't keep it up <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know so, so subsequent to um, Love to Love You Baby you got you know I Feel Love which I suppose uh, two years later or something like that where, where it is electronic percussion and where famously Brian Eno turned up in the studio in Berlin where, um, where he and David Bowie were making whatever record they were making and said, this record this will change, will change the sound yeah. of pop music. And, you know, Brian Eno is well known for making sweeping statements, many of which get forgotten because <laughs> they you know, don't turn out to be true. For instance, he's been, he's been predicting the return of doo-wop for about the last 40 years. But what he said about I Feel Love was absolutely correct. It did absolutely... Spot on. Totally. ...change the sound of all kinds of music, uh, you know. But for lots of reasons, wasn't it? because I mean, one was it's the four, four to the floor um, rhythm, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a kind of standard four-four rhythm, which is different from well, you know, si B or pop. As Simon Napier Bell, I think, said that when we had Simon as one of our guests on Word in Your Ear ages ago, he said it was um, it was it was music for white people to dance to. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of no nuance in it at all. You know, yeah. any any clown could dance anybody to can dance to four to the floor to exactly that, to that kind of sound. And the other amazing thing is it's got that idea of repetition. I think you mentioned in the book that Autobahn had come out in 1974, so about a year beforehand. And Autobahn is a 22-minute is a, is a kind of uh, 
art piece, isn't it, about, about Kraftwerk's idea of just travelling on the endless, monotonous motorway to something mesmeric about it. But, but up till then, no one had, had thought of that idea of just repeating the same theme, had they? It had to be a song structure. You know, there had to be yeah, different, that's, different tends shapes to, be the way to, the, it was. to the track. I mean, the thing that people forget about, well, or don't, don't know about Kraftwerk and autobahns, when it appeared, it was very popular, but it was regarded as a novelty record. Yeah, it was. You know, it was kind of a completely one-off. Yeah. You, know, you, you couldn't possibly do anything like that again, could you? Of course, they then did, you know. Yeah. It wasn't a, subsequent records weren't about the Autumn but But you never listened to a Kraftwerk record later on and thought, hang on, something will happen in a minute. No. <laughs> you know, Middle eight's going to come in. The whole section's going to kick in. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And so, yeah, Love to Love You Baby is, is very significant, uh, you know, and gateway another thing is that Neil, Neil Bogart tested the record out, I think, didn't he? Didn't he have a couple of parties where he played the record? Well, And he, he looked at the reaction that people went out and danced and people really responded to it. Well, I thought he, that's interesting because you can't really dance music uh, uh, from, from then on, really. People do tend to kind of... Um, to uh, what's the word? Market research it, don't they? They take oh, absolutely. To play early tracks to see what works on the dance floor, what doesn't, and then you edit it accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's certainly true. And, and then you, you 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 edit and you remix and you extend and you you find all sorts of different ways of of uh, varying the yeah um, yeah yeah you know the basic recipe. So yeah, did I tell you I went to Donna Summer's house? No, no, amazing. I, Where was I, that? It, well, she she lived in, um, and I'm trying to work out exactly when this must have been. It has to be the early '90s or something. Yeah. And I was at, I was out in California, um, doing something, and her record company in Britain, who at the time were WEA, I think, and I think she had um, put out records with Pete Waterman, who'd kind of you know, brought her back. And uh, and they just wanted to somebody to interview her for this kind of EPK, as, as they call it. You remember those yeah. electronic press kits? Yeah. It was a paid job, you know. And so, would you come to Donna's house? So I went to Donna's house. And Donna, someone, very nice lady. Um, so already I have it in my in mind as, as being something like the, the, the content of that song, you know, the, the, it's a kind of, you, you see kind of vast waterbeds uh, you see, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mirrors on the ceiling. No, it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. wasn't like that at all. She um, she lived out in Hidden Valley in um, I don't know about forty minutes north of LA, um, which is an area where I think Michael Jackson lived at one time. You know, it was the kind of all right, yeah. It's kind of place where huge, you know, people who made fortunes in the music business or the movie business or whatever went out and bought themselves ranches and had loads of horses and lived this kind of, you know, idealized cowboy, uh, landed gentry lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And she was out there with, her, you know, her husband and her teenage daughters. And what her main passion was at the time was painting. I don't even remember this. No. And, so, and that's what she wanted to talk about. Heart sinks, pop stars. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Very few things could come. I can't come up what like. the record company would have wanted, would it? <laughs> I think we got we got a bit about music. We got a bit yeah, about painting as well. It was you know she had a, she had a painting uh, a studio uh, down the bottom of a garden. Uh, but anyway, she's a very nice lady. So that I, I, yeah, nothing terribly exciting occurred. 
that I went to Donna Summer's house. That's that's a very memorable. I'm immensely impressed. I never knew that. There's always something to, to learn about me. <laughs> there is. The Word Podcast. It passes the time. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, Ricky Wilson out of the Kaiser Chiefs. He happened to be talking about cars, but anyway. And, and he said he wasn't sure whether he wanted to put gold and silver discs up on his wall or not. And I thought, that's an interesting thing. And my question to you, Mark Ellen, is if you you know, somehow made hit records, would you put gold discs and silver discs on your wall? Would you do it? I'd like to think that I wouldn't. <laughs> Good. Don't you Why think? Because not, I think it's, well, for, for lots of reasons. One, it's, it's kind of gauche, isn't it? <laughs> it's gauche and it's tasteless. And two is how awful to have to brag about that because you're bragging about commercial success rather than the quality of your work. And thirdly, um, you you shouldn't have to tell people what you've achieved. You know, that's the main thing. It's a bit like reviewing yourself. It's a bit like saying, you know, the quality of my records is this. It's not up to you to say that. No, it's up no. to other people. You can't make those assessments. Do you know what I mean? I know, what, I know what you mean. But there's also the additional factor that that gold and silver discs are manufactured, you know, like there's no tomorrow. They're all, they're just turning them out absolutely all the time for every to mark every particular little sales record so yeah. it's not it's not like an oscar or a grammy or whatever where there's a limited number of them you know so i've always found with gold discs and silver discs whatever you you go to somebody's house and they've got them there you you go and look at the little plaque underneath and it always says something slightly disappointing like yeah to mark for 100,000 sales, sales in belgium tape in belgium <laughs> whatever you know it's never you know it's like you say you know if you've made she loves you or or you know you've lost that loving feeling it doesn't need you know a record you know a commemorative record on your wall to to underline what you've done it's pretty obvious to people what you've done now they always look rather needy to me they always end very desperate they always end up in the management office, in my experience. I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen them in a rock star or, home. Or on eBay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's possi possibly the case. Um, it sort of derives from what Australians used to call the Bragg Wall, didn't they? There was a, you know, Australians used to have a, 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 the Bragg Wall, I don't know if they still do, but the Bragg Wall was a kind of a, was your, your part of the living room, which, which announced all the things you'd achieved. So it was kind of awards, things you were the, proud of. The people who are worse for doing this are footballers, of course, who, you know, every time you know they get a hat trick or whatever they keep the ball uh and you know and they and it's and it's put there on some kind of case in their home you know with the shirt that they wore on that day and you know they end up what, having with that. a little ticket explaining that that's, oh yeah really oh, my god, oh god i mean the uh, people uh, you can find this stuff on youtube where people take you around their kind of their museum type annex to their massive house in, in North London or where, wherever it is, you know, where they keep keep all that stuff as if they have to remind you 
that they were once a big noise, you know, they sort of don't have to, you know. They shouldn't have to. That's, it sounds insecure and yeah, it's pathetic. You know, it's if, embarrassing. If it's you're embarrassing. Rude, you're rude hullets, you know. We know what you achieved in the game, you know what I mean? You don't need to keep on reminding us, you know. So similar, if you went around to Bob Dylan's house, do you think it's there would be much. a gold disc <laughs> on the wall? I don't think so. Have you got a Paul McCartney's? I don't think so. I think it's extraordinary. Yeah, there might be something in a in a workroom somewhere on the you know in the farther reaches of the estate or something. But the only gold like... disc I ever got was a Bob Dylan one. And and in those days, if you were thought to be uh, thought to be one of the people who contributed to the successful record, you got I'm sure you've had a few as well. No, I, I got one for O oh Mercy. It was a gold disc for O oh Mercy. It was saying to thank you for the contributions or whatever it would have been. Q Magazine for the for the, the 150,000 sales of O oh Mercy by Bob Dylan. I'm really, really pleased when I got it. And then I thought, what can I do with this? I mean, nothing. I'm not even the artist. I'm nothing to do with it. I'm just happened to be somebody who put him on the front of a magazine, as any fool would have done at the time when the record was out. But anyway, have you, have you still where is it now? That's a good point. It's up somewhere in the roof. Well, I'm sorry, it's got to come down because oh, I have to go find we're going to say, I can't believe that. I never knew you had this. No, I have. I don't think I've found it. You're going to go up there after we've done this and you're going to find that. And that's going to feature in some uh, future word in your attic. Definitely. So, anyway, it's only the last week that I learned about the culture of the Stan. Do you know the uh, Stan culture? Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, my wife just asked me what Stan meant, and uh, and Stan is, unless I'm entirely mistaken, is it's a combination of stalker and fan, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, God. It's over. Is that right? Over. Yes. Oh, possibly derived from the Eminem song, song Stan. Actually, who has that uh, very very peculiar character at the end, who's uh, responsible for the death of the girlfriend. But I mean, uh, no, Stans are, are kind of uh, overzealous, maniacal fans, aren't they? Who team together in order to ensure that there is maximum. And, un- and, and uncritical coverage of uh, of the of the of the fans that they of the stars that they support. And we started talking about this because there's a piece in the Guardian about um, the Stan um, response to the critical uh, response to the Taylor Swift uh, most recent album, which is generally speaking had immensely favourable um, responses, but then the odd one was, you know withheld a little bit of praise somehow i don't know and of course these stands who back in the day used to uh, express themselves by sending letters letters please note uh, very often inscribed in green ink you know to pressing very hard they send it to you and me at smash hits or wherever because we'd been you know, less than fulsome in our praise of I don't know who it would have been at the time. Sham 69. Receiving it was a very, very uh, aggressive mail about her. But never, never at the time did it ever cross your mind, this person might want to do me harm, you know what I mean? Or this person might want to terrorise me or my family or somehow you know, interfere with the normal, you know, daily life and so forth. Whereas the point but of this the, is the Guardian is exactly what's happening Yeah, because now. there's a girl who uh, wrote the Pitchfork Review, which I think was less than there, 100%, a girl called, I think called Gillian Mapes. And uh, they leaked a load of her contact, contact information. They put up a picture oh. of her home. Can you imagine? Kitty Empire writes for, uh, for The Observer, wrote a, a review, and they said something like... Uh, Give, they warned her beforehand, 100% 
a hundred out of a hundred or some shit will leak. We're going to find your address. Watch out for your windows. You're thinking this is insane. So you're running the risk, supposedly, if you write something that's other than a 100% enthusiastic review of one of these people's uh, albums of people supposedly coming around and lobbing up half brick through your, through your living room. I mean, that's not good, is it? I mean, I, I, wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be kind of slightly cautious about taking on the commission? <laughs> I would. I, I really would. would. I wouldn't. I think it's just would. not worth it. You see, because that's the thing nowadays is what are people frightened of most? They're frightened of the public. They're frightened of the of the mob coming up the drive with flaming torches. They are. <laughs> and this is this is another example of it. You know, I may only appear to be me in my bedroom in. Stoke Pogers, you know, tapping away. <laughs> but actually, we are legion. There are millions of us out here, and we are watching you. You know, and it's not hard to be uh, to be intimidated by that kind of thing. And uh, and and the natural outcome of this, all this stuff, is people just stop uh, broadcasting their opinions about stuff like that because it's simply not worth the trouble. You know, I think it's not—it's not worth the trouble because it's—it's it's, the—it's the—it's the point that that volunteering any opinion at all publicly now in that kind of forum is going to upset somebody somewhere who doesn't agree with you, and they're going to take such a polarized and vicious view of your of uh, your standpoint that it's just going to make life very very difficult. So one of these people undoubtedly at some point it hasn't happened yet, I don't think, uh, but at some point it will end up in court. One of these cases will end up in court because somebody will just go that bit too far and you'll end up, you know, people giving evidence in front of a judge saying, and why did you give this record only 9.5 out of 10? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. right. That's, well, my lad, you know, the, I thought the guitar solos were too yeah. long and you know, yeah. drum sound wasn't uh, high enough in the mix. God, that's so, appalling. So while we're on the subject of the, of the world going to hell in a handcart, Danny Baker sent me this thing uh, yesterday about the uh, somebody's being been coming up with some kind of um, bowdlerized lyrics for Robbie Robertson's "The Night They Drove Old." Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, which supposedly supposedly glorifies the old South and so forth. And so some clown has I can't believe that that anybody could do this has written. You know, an extra verse that sort of says, you know, I'm not like my father, all this kind of thing. I'm totally... Oh, I looked it, I looked it up. It's, it's, a, it's a guy called... Um, uh, oh, uh, I've forgotten his name. Early James? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the original lyric, I think, is, uh, like my father before me, I'm a working man. And like my brother before me, I took a rebel stand. Well, he was just 18, proud and brave, but a Yankee laid him in his grave. And this guy changed it to, unlike my father before me, who I will never understand. <laughs> who I will never understand. Unlike, yeah, unlike the others below me who took a rebel stand, depraved and powered to enslave, I think it's time we laid hate in its grave. I mean, this is very, very extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, well, it, don't you think it's extraordinary? Well, look, look, you know, people have always, you know, oh, God, what do you begin with this? You begin with the word problematic when people yeah. talk about things. Well, they're problematic. They're troublesome. You know, I think if you find yourself to be talking about art in terms of what's problematic and what's troublesome, you ought to just find something else to do, you know, because, you know, 
loads of art is problematic and troublesome. It always has been and it always will be, you know. And how are you going to solve it? Are you going to do like they, in the 18th century, they rewrote Shakespeare's plays, giving them all happy endings, didn't they? Because they, they thought that was the way that was the way to deal with it. And, yeah. uh, you know, this is this is a, an example of the same kind of thing. You know, if you don't want to sing The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, I've got a really novel idea for you. Don't sing it. Okay, just don't sing it. Ignore you don't it. Have to, just totally ignore it. If it's that much of a problem for you, just leave it alone. Don't, whatever you do, sit there with your pencil and paper and say, I'm going to insert a bloody verse in the middle of this thing, which apart from anything else will be, you know, distinctly the clankiest bit of writing in the entire song because it's been added by you, you clown, and then, you, <laughs> and then you're going to sing it. It you is know. metrically slightly uneven, isn't it? just terrible. And I mean, I can, I can understand people being alive to the fact that, you know, it's a song about the... Of course it is. That, that's always been there. You know, but I mean, Robbie Robertson's given some interviews recently, and, you know, the point he makes is, you know, and, and, and is, is that it's just a story about a Southern family. He doesn't... I don't think anywhere in the song is there any kind of judgment about the family. No, 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 context no. of that. It's no. a portrait of a Southern family. Yeah. And uh, you know these are the kind of uh, these are, these are the poor Southerners who are uh, uh, you know who are constricted to be in this in in this war. Well, he doesn't and, he doesn't even have to go. You know, you shouldn't have to. It's a piece of art. For God's yeah. sake, it stands on its own. It does. It's it an does. absolute masterpiece. Yeah. He doesn't need Robbie Robertson or anybody else going out and apologising for any bit of it or saying, "Oh, you may have misread this bit or that." You know. It's up to you as an individual to deal with that stuff. You know, America... Exactly. We all know what the context of it is and we all yeah. make our own judgments about yeah. it. Yeah, well, you know, there's tons of American literature and theatre and whatever that's imbued with the, the, the story of this you know, terrible, you know, uh, civil war and yeah. everything in, that's implied by it. But you don't make it better by suddenly standing to one side and going, oh, I, I, in case anybody's upset by this first, let me explain what it meant. You yeah. Know? It just, it, it really makes me bloody livid, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, liberty. Well, you know. No, it's absolutely fair to make a comment about it. That's totally understandable. But to get in there and, and, and kind of improve it, is right. It's, can make it contemporary. Now it's okay. Because I've yes. got it be like taking a, a, a palette of paints and rearranging a quarter of a famous masterpiece with it. Yeah, and it's just have a bit of damn respect for the for the thing. Or, as I said, leave it alone. Don't get Nobody, Nobody's making you do it at all, you know. Exactly. Nobody's forcing this on you. Whereas now, now I know that guy's done that and I've read that verse, it's going to be in the back of my mind every time I hear that song. <laughs> You know, how dare he, you know, yeah. trample on my relationship with the night that drove old Dixie down by, you know, putting in these stupid ideas. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's him dealt with. He'll never work again. <laughs> this is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit 
from this next bit. So, yes, Wayne Fontana, he of the Mindbenders, uh, died very sadly uh, recently. Uh, the Game of Love singer, as I think he'd probably be described. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of interesting for lots of reasons, I think. One is that, um, you know, the, it, like all these groups, they, everybody is, 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 is subject to, the, to the, the threat of shifting fashion. And the success of the Beatles particularly, and then groups generally, meant that any group that had a singer with a band, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders, Brian Poole and the Tremolos, somehow managed to kind of shed the singer and carry on just as the group. Because it's weird. Were, I know. And both, in those cases, both had lots of success. Yeah. I mean, Eric Stewart was the uh, later of 10CC, became the singer of uh, the Mindbenders, and they had a big hit with whatever it would have been, Groovy Kind of Love. Groovy Kind of Love, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the, tram, the Trems did really Tremolos well. Tremolos were yeah. really big for a few years. Yeah. But the Lines other interesting thing, I think, is that, is that before, you know, again, around the time of the Beatles, the, the, the British pop industry was in awe of America. They were romanticising about American films and American culture. It all seemed so desirable. And that obviously changed with the, with the British invasion. But in that early stage, before the big success of the Beatles and Dave Clark Five with Stones and all that in America, um, people changed their name. British groups changed their names, often with a kind of a, well, yeah. a slightly uh, American oh, tinge to it, didn't they? Definitely. No, I re I've written about this in my, my upcoming book, which I'm going to plug unashamedly. Quite rightly, it's yeah, yeah. Called, it's called Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There, which is about British bands in America. Um, and and it, it really struck me when I looked at this, that it was like um, back in the day, if you wanted to be a conjurer or a magician, you had to be called the Great Marvo or something like that. That's you know, right. They had to have that kind of name. Yeah. But something similar happened with the naming of, of pop stars, that you couldn't be a pop star if you, if you, uh, you, know, you were still called, as Wayne Fontana was, Glyn Ellis. You simply couldn't be a pop star called Glyn Ellis. And so all those people, you know... That, Ron uh, Witchley. Ron Witchley was Billy Fury. Billy, was Billy like, Fury. Red um, Smith was Marty Wilde. Yes. Dave Grun David Grundy uh, became Dave Berry, you know. Yeah. So they, they all changed to, to, to names that had some kind of association. Wayne Fontana was... Uh, the name was pinched from DJ Fontana. It was the, the drummer on Elvis, Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah. Elvis Presley Records. And you simply had to do that because it really struck me that the original names that these had were all like kind of grocery boys' names. You know what I mean? They were all <laughs> they were all kind of parochial. They all kind of, you know, redolent of cobbled streets and bicycles, you know. Delivering, delivering the groceries, that's right, like, taking that's stuff right. for the butcher, you know, yeah, those kind of things. You know, I, the, the one of my favorites, I was not so much a lead singer, but um, but the drummer of the searchers, um, w was his real name was Chris Crummy, Christopher that's Crummy. That's correct, and you simply cannot be in a band in 1962 or 64 or whatever. Well, called Christopher Crummy, and so he changed it I to Chris Curtis. You know, well, well, Freddie, Freddie Garrity of, of Freddie and the Dreamers. Well, they, they got rid of just, just drop the Garrity, drop the Garrity. So like, you never knew, and Jerry Marsden, you know, Martin, there was nothing wrong with Marsden, but I mean, he was just known as Jerry, and, uh, and rather than change his name, he just get rid of the name that looked a bit lumpen and clumsy. Uh, yes. You know, it, it was uh, it was to do with the kind of uh, the, the the British cringe over anything that seemed 
seemed British at the time. You know, it did. It changed over a long period of time. Because don't forget, you know, the, even the Beatles' early days. You know, Paul called himself Paul Ramon. Paul Ramon. And, uh, at one Paul stage. Ramon. Uh, why the Ramones are called the Ramones, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And of course, and and and, and as one member, Richard Starkey did obviously you know, uh, present himself as a Ringo Starr, which is like a character out of a Western. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you had to do those things to your name to affect the transformation from you, your normal kind of embarrassed, you know, inhibited self in the living in a London suburb or wherever you were. Yeah, exactly. Into this, into this larger-than-life creature you had this uh, fabulous name like Wayne Fontaine. Wayne, which is a truly great name. <laughs> and you think about uh, and, oh, it's a brilliant Wayne Fontaine of the Bible is fantastic. And there were so many others like Paul Pond, Paul Jones. They Paul, had those kind of, Paul Jones has a wonderful American War of Independence well, record. Absolutely, it, John know? Paul Jones. You know, that John was, Paul Jones, uh, was yeah. the naval commander in the Whereas, in the, uh, whereas if you said, now, ladies and gentlemen, our, our lead singer, Paul Pond. <laughs> you finish your pint and go home. Look, there's, there's no magic about that at all, you know. I mean, I, there's, there's two there others was... that you mentioned in, in, in the in the upcoming book, which I love, which is the Nashville Teens. If you get the Nashville Teens, we're from Woking. Yes. they're a British group. You there's know, nothing, nothing Nashville about them at no. all. The Stormsville Shakers were from Guildford. Yeah, I mean that's fantastic. Isn't there's it? no such place as Stormsville, but it's no, no, absolutely. It sounded as though it was some, some place in the United States where absolutely everything was happening. Well, uh, there was a wonderful kind of counter, uh, 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 a kind of reaction to this to, uh, in America later on after the British invasion, where lots of American stars were, were, were trying to kind of anglicise their names, weren't they, and make them sound kind of almost aristocratic. So you've got, you've got, you've got the Amboy Dukes. Yeah, you well, know, it, you've got the Charlottes, you've got the Sir Douglas Quintet. The Sir Douglas Quintet. So that's a brilliant. I mean, how weird is that as a I name? Know. You know what I mean? I know. Sir Douglas. Yeah. And then Quintet. Yeah. And they came from Texas. You that's know? right. And there was kind of no change in the music they played or anything at all, but they just they just dressed as if they were a British group. But yeah, there are a whole load of those uh, bands. There was a, there was a great... The, uh, do you remember the Dukes of the... Stratosphere records that yes. came out that Andy that XTC put out? And they had these wonderful sort of uh, stage names, you know. And Andy Partridge was, uh, called himself Sir John Johns, which is keying into that perfectly, isn't it? And, uh, so. and Dave Gregory was Lord Cornelius Plum. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. It's a fantastic send-up of what Americans would have called, called themselves. Yeah. To try and sound, yeah, yeah, posh and British. Yeah. It's brilliant. So that was, uh, yeah, it was the golden age of doing that, was the mid-60s, uh, yeah. changing, of changing your name. Although even, you know, later on in the 60s, I still can't get over this. The fact that Reg Dwight <laughs> from decided, Reg Dwight from Pinner, who was, you know, this this short, slightly plump, slightly absurd-looking character in John Baldry's band, announced, I think when they came back from a tour of Scotland or somewhere like that, they, 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 they'd gone on some particularly miserable tour in the middle of winter and, uh, you know, had a... People who just wanted to you hear "Let the How Takes Begin," which was John Baldry's hit at the yeah, time, yeah. and they all wanted to play, you know, Mose Allison or whatever they wanted to play. <laughs> so, at the point of their lowest de defeat, 
at their very lowest ebb just before Christmas in the winter, coming back from a tour, Reg Dwight announces to the rest of the band on the bus from the airport that henceforth he would like to be known as Elton John. I mean, can you imagine? How the idea being that that, that would happen instantly. <laughs> Someone would turn around and say, hey, Elton, you know, t- would you like some cupcakes? You know, and, but, yeah. but the idea that you did it, you see, the thing about changing your name is you've got to do it when nobody cares what your name is one way or the other. You know what I mean? When, so the whole notion of ever being famous is just ridiculous because nobody can, knew nor cared whether he was Elton John or Reg Dwight. And to make that announcement that you've made that change, there's something quite sad and, you know, profound about it, isn't there? You know what I mean? It is sad. No, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and how uh, would they have dealt with that? My God, that would have been impossible, wouldn't it? Well, they, they, they just laughed at him. They just laughed at him. But boy, he got the last laugh, <laughs> did it? <laughs> In the biggest, you know, because that's the most successful case of anybody changing their name in the history of pop music. Discuss. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. Can we just applaud and welcome uh, the new patrons? Uh, certainly, this week. certainly. And they are Rob Kitson, Dave Holly, Dave Holly, Todd Taylor. Todd Taylor, there's a name. Yeah, there's a name. George A. McCaskill. What a great name that is. <laughs> Terrific. Mike Haightley and Jacqueline. So well, very, very much. So very all. nice to have them all aboard, and Terrific. they, of course, will be able to be involved in in some of the many things that were uh, many special offers that we're extending to Patreon supporters, including we have a number of crowdcasts set up for the uh, for the next few weeks, which we says our um, our efforts to keep the word in your ear uh, events alive, but do them online, uh, which has the advantage that we can also we can get a wider range of guests because we're not restricted people just in the UK. And so, you know, one of our guests is, for instance, Kenneth Womack, who's written the book about John Lennon's uh, last year, last year in, in New York City. We were talking to him from the United States. We've also got uh, Crankhouse featuring, uh, is it Joe Banks, who's written a book about Hawkwind yeah, and, the, right. and the Underground. And, the, and, the underground, and, yeah. and I'm trying to remember what the third one is that we've announced. Can you remember... Oh, it's one about hair. It's about about uh, glam metal. Yes, of course. Yes, it's a it's a book. It's a book about uh, glam metal and uh, and everything that goes with it. So in in those cases, what we're going to do is we'll record those things online via Crowdcast. But uh, Patreon supporters will be able to be in the room, if you like, uh, as we and involved and able to ask and questions involved, involved and able to ask questions yeah, and precisely. so forth. And so there are, you know, there are loads of, uh, loads of different things coming your way. Uh, if you want to find out more about them, just go to patreon.com slash word in your ear. I've, I've just got to close with this, Mark. Oh, this I, is so I, funny. <laughs> which I was sent, sent by Gary Warren, uh, who sent us this from New York City. He claims he, he struck, a, he happened upon this recording totally by mistake. I don't know whether I believe it, but basically, it's you and me, Santa, like the most drunk and the most pompous rock critic. It's just half speed, daughter. isn't it? It's, yeah. it's half speed. So, okay, here we go. Here we go. Up to when you get 
Keith Richards. <laughs> I know rock critics who sound like that. Uh, you know, I don't, rock, rock critics are the most pompous species they of human being on are. the earth. The idea that they're talking. I sound like Prince Charles. It's appalling. So that's how it goes. So, Gary Warren, thank you very much we for thank that. You. We'll get We're you a playtime. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.